There is a physical reality. There are particular things in particular places. There are laws that matter obeys. There are events that cause other events. There have been countless interpretations and theories about why things do what they do, but they're all based on and influenced by this underlying reality. So if there's something spiritual, something beyond the physical, is the same dynamic in play? Is there a baseline spiritual reality that the faith traditions of the world echo out from? And if so, what's that reality like? And where do we see this common thread in people's spiritual lives? Stay tuned. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Swedenborgian Life. Today we're going to be looking at the common threads, and we're going to be looking at the echoes. Are these different spiritual traditions, religious traditions that we see, sort of uh, the interpretations or all based on some underlying truth about things, uh, which would hopefully be the situation. You know, you find people reporting different things about their experiences in the physical world. Is there that same kind of um, branching out based on experiences of the true same thing in the spiritual world? Why, why is everybody telling these different stories and where do they link up and everything to take you through the story? Uh, I'm the host, Curtis Childs, but as a special treat today, you're going to be seeing less of me and we're going to go more in depth into interviews with people who are experiencing these different kinds of faith traditions and, and we can learn from them uh, what they're, what it means to them, what it is to them, and we can pull out the the um, con- congruencies and dissimilarities and whatever we find there to try to get it at the heart of the matter. So on this show, we often, t- we often, by often, I mean always, talk about the world according to Swedenborg, or the world's, the spiritual world, the physical world, the ultimate reality, according to what Swedenborg reported based on his experiences. And what you get in Swedenborg is this hyper-specificity. Like he will talk about, this is the kind of hat that appears on a spirit when that spirit is talking about this kind of thing. He gives you very much molecular level detail on all this stuff. However, he, in his broader claims about the nature of reality, actually intersects with a lot of different traditions. And in some of his, what you would think would be more bizarre claims, you actually find these same claims being made in other places. So to take you through that, our first guest that we're going to hear from is Richard Smoley. He's an author and a philosopher. He's been on the show a couple times. Great guy. He focuses on the world's mystical and esoteric traditions. We wanted to ask him, based on his studies, where do you see what Swedenborg said in a broad sense overlapping with what other people have said? Because if there really is something out there, multiple people should be seeing this thing and at least getting close enough to each other in their definition that we see, oh yeah, there's different parts of the elephant, if you're familiar with that parable. So this is what uh, Richard had to say about one of the large commonalities that's seen both in Swedenborg and other traditions. Well, one striking resemblance between Swedenborg's thought and many other traditions is that of the universal human, which is to say that all of us are organically connected to one sometimes called grand man, universal human. Uh, In um, many traditions, it has many different names. In uh, the Kabbalistic tradition, it's known as Adam Kadmon. Uh, The primordial man in Zoroastrianism was known as Gaia Mart. Uh, in the Hindu tradition, this primordial man was known as Purush. And this is a very universal teaching. 
Now, there are variations. Uh, Swedenborg's view is that we are essentially all working to combine together to uh, complete and um, perfect this grand human. Other traditions sometimes will talk about a primordial fall in which this human originally kind of descended into this realm and fell into lots of little pieces, which is you and me and everybody else. Uh, Swedenborg doesn't take it in that direction, but we can see that both, all of these are kind of moving toward the sense of one great human being of which we're all a part. And this makes a certain amount of sense because, you know, we, we hear the phrase, we are all one so many times. And, you know, from a certain point of view, it's utterly meaningless. What do you mean we're all one? You know, you get the job, I don't, and so on, so on. It's only at this deeper cosmic level that we're all one. And I think that's one remarkably striking parallel between Swedenborg's thought and that of many of the other great traditions. So the grand human, we're not starting out with, oh, that there's life after death. The, the grand human, if you've heard of that in Swedenborg, it seems like that would be sort of a, um, uh, this is a curiosity or a strange Swedenborgianism, but there are many traditions reporting. Now, you notice that there's variation. It's not like they all report the exact same thing, but this idea of a, a macrocosm human being is out there, and it has slightly different meanings, but as you would expect if people are experiencing it in different ways. But that's not the only large-scale commonality. There's more. Let's take a look. This is another one that Richard described. Another striking parallel between Swedenborg's thought and that of uh, many other traditions is the notion of many levels of reality. And just about all of these have some kind of system that's relatively similar to Swedenborg's. That is to say, if you want to break it down as simply as possible, there's this realm, Earth, earthly life, the world, whatever you want to call it. There are realms above it, uh, which uh, just to call it simplistically, are heaven. These are realms that are in some way better or less problematic than the human realm. Uh, and then there are the realms below it, which are, again, as stated simplistically, are hell, which are not really as nice uh, even as life on Earth is. And we humans occupy a middle realm and that we are, in a sense, a kind of transit or one or another of these other realms, uh, depending greatly on our character and moral actions uh, in this life. Now, there are many variations, like the Buddhists have a heaven and hell system where nobody is there in any of these things eternal. You might be there for endless, countless ages in hell or heaven, but eventually, your karma is exhausted and you move out and you go somewhere else. Uh, that is not a tradition that one finds in um, Christianity is generally understood. And I don't see it in Sweden pretty much. He, he does definitely see this view of life on earth as one thing. And uh, then you go up or down depending on um, what he calls your ruling love. So levels of reality, and I've heard, you know, in comments on this show on the web, people have said all different kinds of numbers. For there, there's twelve levels, there's seven levels, there's always, but there's got to be something. There's some kind of leveled existence. Meaning, meaning, here's the physical level that we're on right now, and you can go a trillion light years in that direction, and you'll never get to the spiritual level. 
You know, it's, it's, it's all physical in this way. But then there's a whole spiritual level or, or, or one level of the spiritual level that you can travel. And that these, these realms have sort of moral gravity or, or there, there's some kind of moral distinction in them. Here, you, you can be as good a person or a bad a person. It's never going to move you up and down the street unless you get caught doing something. But there, everybody is saying that the kind of people we are affects our, our mobility. And we did a whole show, How to Travel in the Afterlife, based on that, on Swedenborg's worldview. But there's got to be something about this. There's more than just the physical, and that it matters uh, how nice you are. That That is your sort of travel got, companion there, is your own morality and how you treat other human beings. And Swedenborg became known as the dude who saw spirits. I mean, he, was, he used to be a scientist, started to have these experiences, and everyone's, oh, you're the guy who can see spirits. So let's talk about spirits and how they pop up, uh, both positive and negative, negative spirits in all these traditions. So here's one more from Richard. Another aspect of Swedenborg's thought uh, that it shares with many other traditions is the notion of spirit beings, angels, and devils. That is to say, there are entities who live in these realms um, who are not visible to human eyes, but who can nevertheless, under certain circumstances, interact with us. You know, there are, and again, there are angels who are essentially positive beings. Uh, there are spirits who are kind of an of an ambiguous nature. Uh, sometimes they're recently departed humans who, um, you know, are a bit disoriented or, um, you know, ambivalent themselves in their moral orientation um, and, you know, can be off course and lead us off course. And then there's, you know, what they would call, what Swedenborg would call, you know, the, the uh, devil or Satan. And, and you'll notice, of course, that he um, actually uses devils and Satans in the plural. He distinguishes between these two. And there are whole kind of complex, almost um, zoologies of these beings at subtle levels that um, exist in all traditions. I mean, the Muslims speak of jinn, uh, which are spirits uh, roughly along the lines we're, we're talking of. Not always favorable to humans, not always necessarily inimical to humans, uh, but in some way existing in a parallel uh, realm to us. And sometimes we have some contact with them and sometimes we don't. Uh, for reasons that sometimes seem very complicated. Um, the, um, I mean, it's interesting, there's a statement in the Quran that uh, God created two classes of beings at, at the outset. One were humans, which were created from clay, and the other which uh, were the jinn, uh, who were created, as it says, from smokeless fire. Uh, the jinn, by the way, uh, the word jinn is the origin of our word genie, as in genie in a bottle. So there are just enormous numbers of beings uh, that populate all the, uh, the the universes, seen and unseen, in, in just about every tradition. Uh, Swedenborg teaches this as well, and I think this tradition is so universal and so widespread that we have to take it seriously and to write it off just as this kind of collective imagination or wishful thinking or delusion or fantasy uh, seems to be very, very simplistic and um, ultimately mistaken. And that that's the point that I want to reinforce, what he just said there. There's, there's sort of three worldviews that you can have around 
the supernatural or, or the something beyond the physical. One is that it's all nonsense. Like it's, it's all just made up. People just imagined it for different reasons. But the permeation of the idea of something spiritual and these particular concepts like spiritual beings, their survival of the soul after death, segmented levels of reality, they're everywhere. Like you did, we didn't like, there wasn't a continent where nobody thought this stuff up. It was everywhere in so many forms. So there's, it seems like how, how could we dismiss all of that? outright. Then the other tract is to say, well, yeah, there's all this stuff, but my tradition is the only one that got it right. Everyone else is just making it up, which is sort of the same thing. You think, okay, I'm I'm in religion X, and this is the truth, and everything else is just, just nothing. It's just like fake, you know? That's basically just being uh, the same position as position one to everything else, but for some reason you believe yours. But the third one is that there there is something and everything that we, all these different traditions, somehow came out of interaction with this underlying reality. These are different ways of describing, and there's some, could be plenty of mistakenness about the actual reality. I mean, as we said in the intro, there is a physical reality. There really are things, and they really work a certain way, and you can say they work a different way, but it doesn't change how they really are. So there's probably, whatever the spiritual reality is, it really is something, but even if there are uh, errors about it in all these different traditions, there's probably things are right about it in all these traditions, and they're close enough that they, we can probably get something out of it. So if we're looking, what is that spiritual reality, though? And we're going to look at Swedenborg here, and we're, if we're going to talk about what that spiritual reality is, you probably want to start with God, because that would be the bedrock of the whole thing. This is his definition, or one of his definitions of God. This is from True Christianity 37. He says, God is, yeah, what is God? God is love itself and wisdom itself. These two constitute his essence. All the infinite things in God and all the infinite things radiating from him relate to two essentials, love and wisdom. Our earliest ancestors saw this relationship. In the sequence of ages that then followed, however, people removed their minds from heaven, so to speak, and plunged them into worldly and bodily preoccupations. With the result that people became unable to see this relationship, they began not to know what love in it is in its essence, therefore what wisdom is in its essence. They forgot that without a form there is no love, because love operates in forms and through them. God is substance itself and form itself, and is therefore the first and only substance and form, whose essence is love and wisdom. Furthermore, love is the essence that not only forms all things, but also bonds and unites them to each other. Therefore, love is the force that holds all things in connection. And you see, Swedenborg has got his scientific mind still firing there. He's talking about God, but he's talking about God in terms of quality or substance. This is the essence of things. Like, how do you distill God down to what God is? Now, Swedenborg very much described uh, a God with a personality, if you will, a God that could interact and think it's not just it's not just another word for the first principles of, of nature or reality, but but he hammers this point over and over again that God is something that has a quality to it, an underlying essence and form. He was trying to describe the, this spiritual reality, and love and wisdom, those are interesting terms because we think of those as, okay, love would be a feeling that you get, and wisdom would be some kind of program of running knowledge that you a particular way of looking at life that really meshes up with how life is or something like that but he's saying though that love is 
the force that holds everything in connection. Wisdom is the form of that love. So there's this spiritual reality that he's trying to describe. And the, the traditions, the other traditions of the world besides Swedenborg came from some kind of either a, a trace description of this, like people back in history knew it and it kind of filtered down through story, or somebody had an experience of it. And Swedenborg, as we mentioned in that quote, said that back in the day, the human race, ancient people could perceive this directly. They didn't need a religion in between. This, was, this is from Swedenborg's work, Apocalypse Explained, 837. He says, the ancients did not know what faith is, but in place of faith they had truth. After all, when people perceive or see truth with their intellect and acknowledge it for that reason, they believe it voluntarily. So they cannot be told they ought to believe it. They already do. For example, suppose you were to see a tree or a flower in a garden, and someone told you that you ought to believe or have faith in the existence of the tree or flower, that it was such a, of such and such a kind of tree or flower. Surely, your answer would be, why are you asking me to believe or have faith in it when I see it myself? This is why the angels of the third heaven who perceive truth from the goodness they possess are reluctant even to mention faith, or in fact to admit that there is such a thing. Angels of the second heaven who see truth by the light of truth that illuminates their intellect likewise de decline to acknowledge the term faith. So you don't have faith in heaven. <laughs> you don't have that same kind of thing. It just, it is what is. And I think that that does bother people about the whole religious conversation. You have all these churches saying, you got to believe this, you got to believe this, but there's nothing self-evident in the things that they're saying to believe. And that's sort of what we're trying to do in this show, is to take Swedenborg stuff, which could just be, this is another, you got to believe it. And in our other episodes, we'll go look at life. We'll look at how does... um how does biology work? How does psychology work? Are we seeing evidence of this worldview in life? So another thing about that quote that we just read, though, is that it seems to indicate that seeing things from love is a higher or a primary state of mind, that, that because of the love that angels are in, they just see the truth of, of how you should act. All these things that nowadays people have faith, tell them that faith is really just a tool to get you to that truth that truth that angels see is the reality, and the truth has to do with love, and that, that, that truth in, in itself is just a means to how to accurately live and love. And so I wanted to get a perspective on that. Where, where's another, a tradition that's not Swedenborg or even Christianity that Swedenborg was kind of operating within that, that says that this thing, that love is primary? Our next guest uh, was this great example of that. His name is Losong Samten, and he uh, is a Buddhist monk, and he was actually a personal attendant to uh, His Holiness the 14th Dalai Lama, who I read some books by, awesome guy, prior to, prior to moving to the United States in 1988. And he's one of the mandala masters. He was he made one of the first sand mandalas. You know what a mandala is? You're about to see it. Don't worry about it. He created one of the was one of the guys creating the first public sand mandala in the West in 1988. So he's had a lot, and he's also he's been in a Martin Scorsese film. This guy's been uh, in a lot of stuff, and we were lucky enough to get to interview him and hear about what you're making this design in sand. Why are you doing that, and how is this linked to this core uh, of love and compassion? So here's what he had to say about that. Sand mandalas are, one thing is very secret, and also these are very, very old ancient designs over 2,600 years, and it's very appropriate, and each design or shape, the color, 
many level of meaning there uh, for the spiritual meaning and uh, uh, environment meanings uh, and <clears throat> overall this is a mandala portion of the mandala of compassion and while I'm doing this for example doing the design uh, and one thing is I need to be uh, thinking as much as I can uh, compassion and reciting the mantra of compassion. But also, long as I'm another way to um, while doing this, it's just clear of my thoughts. It's a very meditative. So uh, the mandalas are are not only uh, the art, but it carrying the message for for what we need in our life, to how to prove our life. So that's the, really the main meaning of the mandalas. And uh, especially I came here for this project, Mandala Sen Art, Mandala Project 1988 in New York City. That was the first time we displayed the Sen Mandala in the publicly in the West. And and uh, so, uh, before 1988, never done Sen Mandala in the public like this. But so it's carrying a, a, a <clears throat> message for peace and kindness. And so that's why uh, a lot of in interest that people, even though now might that know to depth of the mandala meaning, but people are very fascinated to see the color sand can, can design such a way, uh, indicate designs. Compassion is the point of it, that, that it's not just art, as he said, it's, it's a way to teach how to live in love. And if this spiritual reality, Swedenborg is talking about angels who are, don't even know what faith is, they know what love is, and that the truth leads you to love, they just see the truth. You know, was somebody, you know, Losang, said that he is carrying a tradition that's over 2,600 years old, and somebody is somebody had an experience then where they saw this, or, or were given this mandala, is that that same, maybe they talked to the same heaven, you know, and that, that this was a tool to get people to it. So just because a form is different doesn't mean it's not the same root. He mentioned there the mantra of compassion. So we, we, were, we already had him on the line, so we asked, okay, what is the mantra of compassion as a tool, and, and how does it, how do, what does it mean, and how do you use it? And this is what he had to say. The mantra of compassion is there six syllables. Om, ma, ne, be, me, hum. <laughs> Om symbolizes the generosity. Om is a very, very common sound or the mantra in India or Tibet. Om. So Om, of course, there are many meanings. One is Om means the generosity. Generosity comes from the compassion. Ma means the ethics, moral discipline, physical discipline, mental discipline. 
world disciplines. And all my name means uh, patience, be patience. And anything we do or dealing with any issues, be patient is very necessary. There also are compassion. More the patients we are, more compassion we're going to be. Omane be means joyful effort, means not giving up or you pursue something, and even though taking a long time, but not giving up, and again and again. Omane be me means a focus, a concentrate focus. Hung means wisdom. So Omane be me hung, we in Tibet, everybody residing Omane be me hung meaning of those is the six perfections, six parameters. And here, the design itself is, uh, this is uh, <clears throat> the middle, middle of the mandala of compassion. And mandala, there are numerous mandala of compassion uh, uh, tradition way, or many, uh, many mandala of, of compassion different lineages. And this one is called the Kelongma Pemuluk. Kelongma means a bhikshu or nun, one of the Buddhist nun, when Buddha was alive. And like Mother Teresa, she was a fully, her practice is not just sitting and prayer, but very actively doing a lot of compassion activities. And she had a vision of this mandala of design, came to the whole vision, and he asked to the Buddha what this is all about. And, and ever since then, this dedicate for the mandala of compassion. And unbroken lineage since then, 2,600 years, and passing to teacher to students, and still is very uh, uh, live uh, practices in, in Tibetan Buddhist tradition. There it is. That he's talking about the the vision that came to that woman that showed her, hey, this is something important, and we use this for thousands of years to inspire compassion, love. I mean, all those syllables, none of them are about you know sign here to join the church. It's like do this, persevere at it, be kind. You know, it's it's a discipline for the mind that leads to good action. And I don't think everybody on seeing that thing, oh yeah, there's something about spirituality there. I mean, that's the core of it. So that is that heaven speaking in a, in a particular way through that tradition, and then it speaks in other ways through other traditions. So we're looking for the spiritual reality, so the, the form of goodness. So is that mandala an outward form of compassion? You know, is that what compassion can look like when it's out there? Swedenborg says that just like there, there are these inner and outer forms that faith is supposed to be the outward form of charity or of kindness. This is Secrets of Heaven 9783. The case is the same with faith and charity as with truth and goodness. Truth is the form of goodness, or in other words, is goodness given a form that brings it to light? So faith is the form of charity, or in other words, is charity given a form? 
So think about that. Is, is the faith that we all practice, is it an external form of kindness? Is this just like the day-to-day applications of kindness? Unless it has that core, it's not really following this, this thing called faith. And because of that, that definition, that, that faith is meant to be the external expression of this, this inner sort of love or kindness or altruism, Swedenborg gets to this definition of a church, which is actually very broad and expansive. It goes well beyond a particular religious organization. You'll see here in Secrets of Heaven 6113, he says, a person is a church when in possession of goodness and truth, and a group of such people make up a church on a larger scale. So there is this larger church community, which has nothing to do with attendance at services or or membership or tithing. It is uh, any of those things can be a boon to it, but only if the inner form is this goodness and truth. And two people can have very different external manifestations, yet still be part of the same church. It sounds like a kind of cool thing, but how do we become a part of it? This is True Christianity 5.10. He says, "...the extended community that is known as the church consists of all the people who have the church within them. The church takes hold in us when we are regenerated, and we are all regenerated when we abstain from things that are evil and sinful, and run away from them as we would run if we saw hordes of hellish spirits pursuing us with flaming torches intending to attack us and throw us onto a bonfire." As we go through the early stages of our lives, there are many things that prepare us for the church and introduce us into it, but acts of repentance are the things that actually produce the church within us. Acts of repentance include any and all actions that result in our not willing and consequently not doing evil things that are sins against God. For what it's worth, Swedenborg really did see evil spirits doing things like that. I just think it's funny that it's like they've got these torches, but they're not going to poke you with a torch, they're going to take you and put you on another bonfire. It's just like... It's intense. Uh, anyway, but but the point is clear, that that if we get to the point where there's always a temptation to do things that will, are advantageous to us but harmful to people, we just got, kind of have that nature. But if we look at that with this kind of complete aversion, even like we want to run the opposite direction, we're, uh, we're on a good path. So that's really what he's saying the core of the church is. And you saw with the mandala, it was all about you know, discipline, um, compassion. It was about how to do it. Even if you have to persevere for it, you know, you're supposed to have endurance. You're supposed to have the, the discipline he talks about is resist negative things, do good things. And that's the core of religion. And Swedenborg says that's the core of the church is this, hey, I'm, I'm going to try to not do what's evil. And we wanted to look for this. So is that is that the core of this spiritual reality? Don't do what's harmful. Try to do what's good. Do we see this popping up? We saw it there in the Buddhist tradition. Here we have a, a, another couple guests who have had Buddhist influence, but also Hindu influence on what they're doing now. And we wanted to talk to them, um, to talk about what is, first, what is their their external form of faith, but then what does it mean? Uh, what does it mean to them in practice? So this this is Michelle and Scott, and they were nice enough to sit down with us. And first, we just asked them what what are the central principles of of your faith or your spiritual practice. And here's what they had to say: one, staying very present with what is exactly. Um, that's my first principle that I live by. The second is. Um, just really paying attention to a sort of a gentleness in my being around with whatever's happening. Because if I'm, if I start kind of getting aggressive with anything, then I block off um, my values. So it's like I'm, I'm, um, 
I'm stopping all the energy that's coming toward me and then I'm not really there anymore. I'm just in my agenda. So I stay like present, gentle. Those are my two main principles. The other thing is to definitely not take anything personally from anybody else. In life, the thing that I work on the most is um, maintaining compassion, um, uh, which is extremely difficult um, because I think my normal tendency or probably a lot of people's normal tendencies is to uh, feel separated from everything that they're experiencing so that you know, this, I'm here, the world's out, out there, and I'm looking at the world, and um, you're different from me, you have different ideas and maybe different political things. You know, there's all these, we often are mostly first experiencing separation. There's a softening into um, being with other people with an open heart. Kind of being a place of awe, and wonder and not being so certain that I know. So it's, uh, you could call it a, you know, humility or just a soft place, letting go of my, you know, any hardening that I might have about how I am um, seeing the world and seeing other people and trying to see kind of initially that we have more in common than we don't, even though, you know, my normal chatty chat mind is always going to be looking for all the things that are different, you know. So that's the first principle, I think, is seeing how are we um, connected. So already we, we asked, what are your core principles? We're talking about interpersonal stuff. We're talking about kindness, compassion, and using the, the uh, spirituality as a tool to get to that place. We wanted to, so we filmed this at a yoga studio that they're both involved with, and we wanted to ask them, okay, you're participating in yoga. What, what does that mean to you? What does yoga mean to you? So first, this was Scott's answer. There's the obvious physical health benefits of um, participating in the flow of, of each postural movement, um, which is extraordinarily, it's changed my life. It's extraordinarily beneficial uh, in that sense. But also I feel like as mere mortals, we always need some reminder, some, some anchor to come back to. So it's like yoga is um, partially anyway, at least not the name yoga, but <clears throat> what people associate with yoga is the coming together of everybody in a space. So there's the recurrent, you know, people come back and they form relationships in the classroom and they, you know, there's this um, sense of camaraderie as we go through the poses and then we have our various experiences in meditation and shavasana and things like this, but that, um, but there's that, it's like an outer representation of the inner process, if you will. So again, the positive impact on himself, on the community, this drawing together, it all seems to have this, you know, ben, spread the love as the core thing. Here's how Michelle uh, talked about what yoga meant to her. Huge is the word yoga is from huge, which means to yoke. So yoking means to come together and that sense of coming together is is the the connecting of my individuality with something that's way bigger 
than my kind of separate sense of self. You know, so you have two sides of the same coin because if you're yoking, you're also pulling away from something. So it's pulling away from this misunderstanding that I am separate from everything and that, that I'm separate from that source. By having that direct experience uh, or the knowledge of that as opposed to the information, like, oh, that's a nice idea that I agree with, um, that yoga is that, the process of getting to that direct experience of, I would call the fullness of, of really what we are, that there's something inside us that, that is uh, living us. And that, that power is um, in everything. And without that, nothing would be here. So we've got these principles and these practices that they have, but we wanted to ask, what, how does this actually change your life? Like out, so when you're outside of the studio or outside of you know, thinking about the, your worldview, how does this change you know, when you're going to the store, when you're doing regular things in regular life? What's, what's the impact for the rest of us uh, from you doing this? So we got answers from both of them. We'll start again with Scott. I um, also work at Whole Foods Market. Uh, so you get the gamut of every kind of person uh, coming up to you for all kinds of things and varying degrees of attitude or, um, <clears throat> you know, just whatever they're, whatever's going on in, in their minds and uh, bothering them. So, um, you know, if somebody's like, where's the apples? You know, and they don't even say hi or announce that your back is to them and they're just like, you know, where's, where's the apples? <laughs> and, and you're like, oh, I'm sorry. You know, and you're in the middle of doing something. You just, you know, for me, it's just sacred nature. Just take them to the apples. Um, but, but I think that even that is like um, a superficial example because, you know, you're trained, you're in a, you're in a professional environment. You're, you know, this is the sort of the thing that you do. So most people would go to that example, I think, first. But the, the rubber meeting the road, I think at a deeper level is an intimate relationship. So with your spouse or with your child or uh, with people who are very familiar, anybody who knows what your buttons are and how to push them is th that's going to be where, you know, your test is. At times I've talked a great game about being, you know, really mindful and gentle, but then, um, it's like watching a movie if somehow something has taken over this body and I'm, you know, raging at the wall or, you know, screaming at the top of my lungs about something, some, in, some perceived injustice, uh, let's say. Uh, as something as simple as, you know, I asked for something to be done, it wasn't done by a child, and then I'm all huffy about it. Um, but then, so, so I blew it, right? Um, but the, the catch is where I catch myself realizing that I blew it and going, okay, well, let's be soft with myself first. So since what's done is done now, it's like, well, can I be gentle with myself and, and just see like, where was, where did I slip up here? And how can I soften my energy around it now so that I can reapproach that same thing? differently next time also this time. Like how can I go up and make amends or how can I 
you know, say, wow, you know, I don't know what I, what, what came over me, you know, let's, you know, back up, retract and um, find a different way through this. You know, let's navigate this with more uh, compassion, logic and thoughtfulness behind it rather than just reactionism. So over the years, and I do mean many years, it's been like a process of um, getting very familiar with my patterns of reaction and using that knowledge to um, to know like in advance it's very likely going to happen that at some point in my day someone's going to say something that you know stirs me the wrong way or, or f makes me feel like uh, whatever and um, and I just know that right when I feel that initial twinge I'm going to pause and I'm going to breathe um, and I'm going to try to remember gentleness that's like my keyword gentle so be gentle Let's see if we can stay open to this. Um, even if I'm like an inner volcano going on, you know, I can just kind of keep breathing until, you know, or, or leave the room or, or use some other tool or device, some other way to um, really, uh, I, I guess, cling to that, that core principle like it's a life raft, you know, on the turbulent water of my mind. So you have endurance, you have compassion there. It, all, all the stuff that he's got on his core principles of practice is about um, running from what's, what's harmful, you know, or, or, or reassessing it, however you want to put it. So this was what Michelle said about what her practice leads to in her day-to-day -day life. It's all about pausing for me. You know, when I name what's happening inside me through practice, which is uh, something's happening... I'm feeling irritated, um, being a mom, you know, it's like so easy to, to just go on automatic pilot and be short or just not be present. Um, and to name if I'm feeling hurried, you know, which is usually an unpleasant feeling. So I say silently to myself, unpleasant. And I come into my environment, where am I? Can you feel your feet on the floor? What's in front of you? Because it's so easy to get caught in the spin. So I just have to keep bringing myself back to where am I really? I'm not in the story in my head. I'm here. Oh, there's my son. He's sitting there. You know, he's eating his cereal or playing with his Legos or whatever. This is what's going on. And um, sticking to the pause practice, just pause, breathe pause, breathe, with an intention every single day and at the end of every single night, you know, being grateful for all of the challenges and all of the great things that have happened and reasserting the next morning, like, I want to be present. Um, and, and so the pause practice is a huge one, naming it, like, this is pleasant, this is unpleasant, or this is neutral. Just being aware of, of what we're doing. I mean, we're not here to do it perfectly, but we're certainly here to be, I think, um, you know, accountable mm -hmm. and um, responsible, you know, for how we're showing up. You have three things. We just showed you. we had Swedenborg's quote about what the heart of spirituality is, what the what the heart of the church is. Then you have you have uh, the the mandala and the Buddhist tradition around it. Then you had those guys there and and the yoga tradition and 
what you see is it all comes down to do good, be compassionate, and here's the ways to get around your own uh, baggage, you know, your own stuff, your own propensities to do harmful or, or less than optimal things. It's all the same thing. So are we seeing a convergence? Very different forms, you know, um, Swedenborg is, you know, traveling, visiting angels and writing books. Uh, you know, we have somebody making a sand mandala, we have people doing postures and poses and, and those kinds of things, but it's all leading to the same thing. There are different ways to get to the same place. And so that, that, there's a good chance that that really is the heart of the message that the human race is receiving from, from the spiritual, from the beyond is, okay, be nice, figure out good ways to, to have discipline and, and be nice. But if that really is the core, why, if faith really is all about love like that, why don't we see that a lot of the time, I and mean, we've been seeing it on this show. But if you ask a, your average person about religion, their their first thing probably isn't going to be love. We do see these groups very focused on um, faith first, love second. You know, it's really about what you believe and are you doing exactly what I want you to be. It can become a very combative thing. This is uh, this is a a, um, a result of faith being separated from love, which was a huge topic for Swedenborg, because he thought it was really harmful. It really separate it really separates the humanity from its source when you pull all these external tr- faith tradition aspects away from this underlying compassion that are supposed to be leading toward. This is a Apocalypse Explained 789. To know and consequently to think and speak is a matter of memory, but to will and do something out of love is a matter of life. There are many things that we can think and say from memory that are not part of our life, or to put it another way, are not something we love. Any hypocrite or flatterer can do this. When left to ourselves, though, we cannot think or say anything from our life that does not come from our love. Love is the life of everyone. And the nature of the love determines the nature of the life. Memory, on the other hand, is just a storehouse that supplies our life with thoughts we can think and words we can speak and with food that serves to nourish it. And faith can be stuck just in the memory side. It can just be, it doesn't change at all how you live. You just know, oh, thing X, Y, and Z are part of my religious tradition, so I believe them and I repeat them to people, but it's not changing how I live. Swedenborg talks about it more, Apocalypse Explained 8.15. The first kind of faith any of us other have ever have is faith handed down from the past. It becomes a saving faith later on when we become spiritual as a result of the way we live. A traditional faith does not save us until we live a life of faith, which is a life of goodwill. This, this is the point at which we will and do what we believe. Willing and doing are matters of love, and love binds us to the one whom faith causes to be present. So it's really not the ideas. It's the love, <coughs> excuse me, I wasn't quite getting choked up about it, but it's the love that these ideas lead us to. That's what really matters. And even the stuff you're taught as a kid, unless you really shake it up and make it your own and really believe it for the right reasons, it won't do that for you either. However, you do need to go through that first state of when you're just learning facts. And our first, any of us, our first state, according to Swedenborg, of spiritual growth is a truth-based state. If you look at our show, Spiritual Fermentation, Swedenborg says that that dynamic is shown in the chemical process of fermentation. If that sounds weird, watch the episode and it will seem twice as weird. So doctrine, doctrinal matters can divide, but there may be more commonalities even within these traditions 
than we realize. I mean, you have Swedenborg, he's got a form of, we could call it a form of Christianity. He uses a lot of the same kind of terminology, same subject material as Christians do, but there were some major differences there that, that Swedenborg often um, brought to the forefront or that other people have brought up. We will get people here on YouTube saying this is not Christian, you know, and, and you, you got to be Christian in order for it to, to be right. But maybe there is this uh, more of a commonality there than, than people even realize. And to look at that, our next guest, his name is Ted Heckman, and he's been trained both in the Lutheran tradition and Eastern Orthodox Christian traditions. And he was a great study for this because he's also come across Swedenborg, is now getting more and more familiar with Swedenborg's concepts and ideas. So he had some good commentary on the similarities and the differences between Swedenborg and traditional Christianity. So here's what he had to say. Since Swedenborg was Lutheran, brought up by a Lutheran family, uh, but he was critical of some of it, and particularly, and Jonathan Rose in his Bible uh, stuff, uh, he often refers to the, uh, the fact that Swedenborg was not happy with the idea of salvation by faith alone. So he refers to that again and again. So I look back into Luther, and certainly in his, in his polemics, particularly with the Catholics or even with the extreme Protestants, uh, which he, he designated uh, the, those that type of Protestants. The word is translated into enthusiasts, but it's called in German, it's Schwärmer. And he would always complain about the Schwärmer on the one hand and the Catholics on the other. And uh, so, but uh, reading his sermons, Luther's sermons, obviously uh, there's a contrast between his pastoral work and the sermons and his polemical arguments with his enemies. And uh, there you'll see after he uh, designates that we are saved by faith alone, he'll tell you why you should be good and why, uh, why it's important uh, to, to have a, a excellent moral uh, standards and uh, to to follow the the path of kindness and love love for for your fellow human and uh, so i said well that's that's the other part of it it's not like that you just have faith but you can do anything you want so i was sort of uh uh, uh trying to reconcile luther and and his swedenborg <laughs> more i i know his his father was a fine man. I have a book on Sweden, and that uh, the Swedish development of the Swedish Church, which became the the, the nationwide church, you know, the uh, Swedish uh, Lutheran National Church, and uh, that uh, interested me because I that's the church that, uh, that I grew up in myself, and um, the. Uh, idea of faith alone, you know, I grew up in a Lutheran family, and nobody ever said, well, all you need is faith, you don't have to be good. We have to be good. You have to do things kind of kindness and love towards others, and that's just, just I mean, that's practiced by Lutherans. So I said, well, you know, when I, th I saw this faith alone as, as the real Lutheran teaching, uh, I thought, well, it's not their, it may be their teaching officially, but it's their practice is more balanced. When I read uh, the uh, uh, True Christianity, the second volume, I believe, in the, towards the end, he meets Luther in the other world, and Calvin and some other famous uh, Protestants. 
and uh, and Swedenborg's opinion about Luther is that he's he's still worth saving, or not. It's not his choice is worth it, but he's still in the process of, of salvation himself, even though he made so certain exaggerations when he was arguing. So you may have actually, in practice, more commonality between uh, the Lutheran tradition and the, the Swedenborgian tradition, and it may that commonality may even extend to this the particularly divisive issue, which is the Trinity. You know, is it three persons? Is it three aspects of one God? What is it? And you know, people, some people, that's their that's their test strip. You know, if are you a Christian or are you not? It depends on your idea about the Trinity. Um, but Ted was seeming like he thought there, there's some common ground there as well. So here are some of his thoughts on that. When you see uh, that, that the idea of the Trinity is different, you sort of, a lot of people, I think, uh, tune it out. That's it. That's, they don't need to know anything else. And, but if you look at that more carefully, there's a lot more to be discovered there than you first think. He was fighting tritheism, the actual idea that there are three gods. So I looked into that and I, I saw that the, the Greek uh, or, original creed that is used in the both Eastern and Western Church, uh, that the Greek term there is, is not a term that is necessarily means person. It's, uh, it's in Greek, hypostasis. And hypostasis was, was a kind of adopted from some of the uh, usages of, of the Greek language, particularly in Plato and other philosophers in, in the Greek language. And uh, it was uh, associated very often with the word trios in Greek, the three. There was three in one, three aspects of a human being, you know, your mind, your heart, and your, your physical. So there's threeness, which doesn't mean three persons. And the, the, the problem was that in the Western church, they, they didn't want to use the word hypothesis. They, nobody knows what you're talking about. Uh, so they translated that to, into the, the Latin term persona. Now persona easily becomes person in English. So no one ever questions that whole thing, and they, they do not see the whole background of the use of the term hypothesis, uh, which there was implicit in the literature of, of the ancient church. Uh, uh, the, the, tr the term trios with hypothesis, uh, three parts of things, three parts of one thing, but the oneness is, is, is a given. And it's not separated into three, but I think there's there's an, an element of of discussion and opening in that whole idea that he was not fighting what he's accused of. He was fighting the idea of of the three God idea. God is it's one. He has to be one, and and that's uh, if he's emphasizing that, then we have a common uh, link there to begin with, at least. So common links, even if it's just for a start, that's what we're looking for. Are we seeing them in all these different traditions and, and in how the traditions are deployed? It seems like even there you heard Ted in the first interview saying, well, yeah, I mean, there's, there are teachings about faith, but you got to treat people well. you got to live with love, and this is what we were seeing in all the previous traditions. And is that, is that the, the imperative from God that comes through all these different routes to us? Again, Swedenborg was concerned with describing what he saw as spiritual reality, and there, 
are within it, he said, essential steps to spiritual growth. This is the process by different routes, but you're, you're, it's all variations on these steps. So as he said in Apocalypse Explained 837, uh, since love constitutes our life, and since we are destined to live forever the life we have acquired in the world in either heaven or hell, it is extremely important for us to know how to acquire and develop heavenly love so the life we live to eternity can be blissful and happy. So how do we acquire heavenly love? Well, I think you see in these previous interviews that we've had, this, these are people working on ways to acquire heavenly love, and they are describing it in one set of terms, and I think Swedenborg is describing the same sort of thing in his own set of terms. If you want we, you know, to go over that in depth, takes a while. We, we've done it, particularly on our show, The Infinite in You. Take a look at that if you want to know about how to make ourselves a dwelling place for heavenly love. But if you don't have time to watch that, we'll give it to you right now in a, in a couple of quick steps. So here's a diagram. So there's us, and you can see we have these two abilities. One, the ability of volition makes us capable of loving, and the other one that makes us capable of discerning. This is our ability to discernment, also called our intellect. Swedenborg constantly references these two capacities as the thing, the core of our humanity, the thing that makes us human. Our will or volition receives everything that's related to goodness and love, and our intellect receives everything related to wisdom. So these two faculties let us be reformed or let us do spiritual growth because these are the things that can receive love and wisdom from the Lord. So our discernment at first is what helps us for our Reformation. You see, in us, it's cloudy. You have uh, the love of self in our uh, will, you have just the facts in our memory kind of clouding things up, but it's discernment at first that can lead us to something good. So first we have to go out and find these good knowledges, and we have to chomp them up, right, make them part of us. We go and acquire higher truths, specifically what Swedenborg is talking about, things like that God exists, um, the nature of heaven and hell, life after death, how to approach divine revelation, that things like that are holy and sacred. Whatever the higher principles of your path are, these are the things that start to illuminate our minds. Then, after we've done that, we start to learn what things are harmful, that, as Swedenborg would put it, evils are sin. So first we have that opportunity, maybe we make a bad choice, because we don't understand what it is, but We learn from these concepts and from experience, oh no, wait, I'm actually going to make a good choice. And in compelling ourselves there, that is what makes the difference. And in us believing that these bad things are, as Swedenborg would put it, sins against God, these are harmful to other people and to us, therefore they distance us from heaven and connect us to hell, so I'm not going to do that stuff. And Swedenborg says all we need to do, once we've realized that, is try to resist those things ask for God's help, because he says you can't do it just from yourself. You need this outside influx. However, if there is this thing about higher power. You know, in 12 steps, it's very effective to just say, hey, get your higher power, whatever it is. Some people will even just say, oh, the group, an outside, any outside source is my higher power. It, you really got to think about it working for where you are. Swedenborg definitely talks about it in, ter- in terms of God, but some people are going to be pushed away by that, so I wouldn't go around beating people over the head with, you got to say God. If you can find a higher power, that's a step as well. So as we shun these evils as sins, then the Lord can connect us to a heaven, to heaven, and from that, in our new will, develops this thing in us from the Lord. We, we receive this heavenly love so that in our love of self, it starts to push out, and you see that we 
gain this new will. The love of self doesn't totally disappear, it just goes where it needs to, but this new will goes through our discernment, allows light to exist there, and comes out into action. And that's the video game of Reformation in life. And that this Reformation process, Swedenborg says, turns us uh, from being a relatively misguided creature into angelic. Uh, it lets our what he would call our heavenly proprium, or, I mean our old proprium, become a heavenly proprium. All that again, our show, The Infinite in You that I mentioned before, that makes it clear how that whole dynamic works. So there it is, there's the game, that's how it plays. Uh, moving on, Let's, but, but what about people who, this is sort of, you're still doing that within your faith tradition, right? What about people that don't have any faith tradition or, or sort of do it, sort of don't, you know, the nuns, people talk a lot about the, the nuns, uh, and that can both, from what I've heard about that categorization, it can either be people who are completely uh, no religion or atheistic or something, or people who are spiritual but not religious, kind of vague who actually fits into that category according to who you talk to. But Swedenborg says even people who aren't in any category like that can be very helpful in doing good things and in showing us what really matters, that this is a part of the process. You'll see here, Secrets of Heaven 2986. It needs to be known that when any church disappears, that is, when love for others dies, the Lord establishes a new religion. Rarely, if ever, does this happen among the people of the old religion. Instead, it happens among people who had no church before, or in other words, among Gentiles. The reason the Lord institutes a new religion among people outside the church is that they do not adopt falsities as premises that oppose the true tenets of the faith, since those tenets are unknown to them. When we absorb false premises from childhood on and later confirm them, they need to be dispelled before we can regenerate and become part of the church. So some people say, oh no, people are leaving churches, but that may be good. You know, it may be that you need to completely shed this sort of negative, corrupted side of things. Just get down to pure ethics. You know, you, people are, you know, the people in the nuns category very often are very interested in justice and in compassion and those kinds of things, but just in a secular way. That that is that is the the fertile ground for something new to spring up. It doesn't usually go right from one church to another. It might in a particular person, but overall with humanity, Swedenborg says, it progresses like that. So what we're saying is that there may be some spiritual reality that you can touch in a lot of different ways from a lot of different traditions, and it's kind of this journey people go on where they see a bit of that spirituality in a bunch of different traditions that really gives credence to this idea that there might be something common at the heart of them all. Our last guest today is David Perry, who is a poet and author. A lot of things, check out his Wikipedia page. But he also has had a, a long interest in Swedenborg, and he's, we had him tell some of his story because he's just been involved in so many different kinds of traditions, and he sees this commonality and has lived this commonality that goes through all of them. Uh, so here, here's him and some of what his journey has been. Overall, I suppose I consider myself some sort of Christian pagan or pagan Christian. You know, labels, 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 labels. Um, my obsession with Swedenborg led to an, another obsession with Gnosticism, which can be Christian or not Christian. Um, because by definition, if you're looking for the knowledge of the heart, which is what Gnosticism means, then you're looking at scriptures in a much deeper way, in a much more comparative way. Um, so overall, that's been a long-lasting theme with me, along with Swedenborgianism. Spiritualism was where I began with it all. 
Um, it's run in my family for quite a few generations. And in the early days, Swedenborg was mentioned once or twice. But back then, I didn't really pay close enough attention. Although when I got to be a teenager, I found myself absorbed in his writings. Um, and I've been a fanatic about Swedenborg ever since. Swedenborg is, to me, a spiritualist par excellence. And, you know, approach the spirit world almost in the, almost with the demeanor of a natural scientist, you know, cataloging, describing. I mean, he's a truly incredible resource for every religious tradition and certainly spiritualism. So quite early on in life, I went looking for different ways to explore the insights of Swedenborg in other religious traditions. I suppose I'm a perennialist. Um, you know, I see threads of connection everywhere between the great philosophies, the great religious traditions. Um, it took me into exploring neo-paganism, into Wicca and into heathenry, um, which are journeys uh, I don't regret at all because all I found were echoes of Swedenborgian theology everywhere. So for me, it was sort of an exploration of how these ideas are expressed in those traditions. And I ended up coming back to spiritualism in the guise of, uh, uh, um, gosh, Valentinian Gnosis, Gnosticism. But for me, all I, all I found along the way, obviously I can't speak for other people, uh, were echoes of Swedenborg and Swedenborgian practices. So I've come full circle, but with a higher understanding, I think, uh, of why I took that journey in the first place and what I've received along the way. I mean, the big idea of neo-paganism is ecology um, and the fact we need to care for the earth and look after our natural resources. So that's really, to my mind, the ideological underpinning of all of that. Um, if you're looking at different facets of neo-paganism, say heathenry, which I was involved with and quite proudly so for many years, what they're looking for are ancestors, um, ancestors which form part of a chain that go back to our ancestors, the trees and the flowers, the angels and something ultimate beyond it all. Um, that, I think, fits in very easily with the Swedenborgian notion uh, of different communities in heaven, different communities working towards the same goal, but in very, very different ways. Um, I suppose with Wicker, it's quite easy to, to see what's going on. There's a first cause which subdivides into a goddess and a god. In other words, love and wisdom. Um, and the Wiccan community, to my understanding, certainly pursues both of those goals back to a point of origin, which is almost like the Swedenborgian notion of endless ascent into the heavenly worlds. We just continue in our evolutionary progress, which seems to be built into Wicca for me. Um, and all of them at the end of the day were different threads I came to feel more increasingly, different strands, different, um, different facets of an overall picture. So all I found was verification of everybody's tradition within those traditions. Yeah, I like that, his story for a lot of reasons. But one in particular there is that he says that in, in this religious diversity, in going to these other traditions, he actually gained insight into the other traditions that he held. You know, he liked Swedenborg, went out, found 
echoes and all these other traditions that gave him a higher perspective, even on the Swedenborg he had before. So he was enriched by the journey and, and can see that there's there's a common, if not a common language, there's a common subject material in the conversation. So that is also brought up by Swedenborg that you, you might think, well, if it's all the same thing, why isn't there just one manifestation of it? Why don't aren't we all the same thing when that cut out confusion, but there actually needs to be these different kinds of traditions because they shape people in different ways and all those different types of human beings they produce are needed to actually make heaven function. This is Heaven and Hell 56. Heaven is where the Lord is recognized, trusted, and loved. The different ways He is worshipped in variations that stem from the difference of activity from one community to another do not cause harm but bring benefit because they are a source of heaven's perfection. Every perfect whole arises from a variety of elements. For a whole that is not composed of a variety of elements is not really anything. It has no form and therefore no quality. However, when a whole does arise from a variety of elements, and the elements are in a perfected form in which each associates with the next in the series like a sympathetic friend, then it has a perfect quality. Heaven then is then a single whole composed of a variety of elements arranged in the most perfect form. For of all forms, the form of heaven is the most perfect. And if you want to see uh, that um, brought out, you can read further in there. You can learn more about the common bonds that hold people together, as Swedenborg describes in Secrets of Heaven 9828. Uh, he talks about when everything without exception looks towards one and the same end, then everything is held in unbreakable interconnection and forms a single unit. This is because it is under the gaze, control, and providence of the one who turns all of us toward him in accord with the laws of hierarchy and collegiality, and in this way binds us to himself, while at the same time turning us toward our companions and in this way binding us to each other. That is why everyone in heaven stays facing the Lord who is the sun there and is accordingly the focus of everyone's gaze. Surprising to say, this is true no matter which direction an angel turns. The Lord is present in the good done by mutual love and in the good done by charity towards one's neighbor because he loves everyone and uses love to bring everyone together. So when angels look on their companions with this kind of love, the act itself also turns them to the Lord. So it's not like a turning in like, okay, I'm not paying attention to you guys, I'm just looking at the Lord. Looking at the Lord is looking at everyone, but in a more effective and a more unified way. And if you want to hear more about that and how these different religions make heaven what it is, check out our show, How Different Religions Coexist in Heaven. Uh, because we really do get into it there in, in all of its glory and splendor. So hopefully you've been able to get a sense through our journey here of this commonality and how we can be talking about the same sort of thing, and that you know not every detail of everything is the same, but there may be this, these principles that do tie everything together. And if, if we know what everyone's saying, can we get a better perspective on this ultimate reality? Or maybe you just want to dive into your own tradition, really get in there and help really clarify that view. It should be a boon to everyone else, because in learning what you learned, it should give perspective everyone else. So hopefully we all go out and do that. The picture gets clearer and clearer, and eventually we move back to the state Swedenborg described, where we don't have to talk about faith traditions and everything. We just know the truth. Here's the truth. You see it as clearly as you see a tree or a flower sticking up out of the ground. So if you enjoyed this journey, please like and subscribe. That helps this to spread out into YouTube to reach people of all faiths and all backgrounds. Hope you're into it, and if you want programming like this to be able to continue, Please consider making a donation. We're a nonprofit, so that's how we keep things going. Here's a little bit of our philosophy and what donations do.
We want the ideas and insights we cover to be available for free to anyone, anytime they need them. That's why we offer Swedenborg's books as free downloads on Swedenborg.com, and we produce this show and other content on our Off the Left Eye YouTube channel with no paywall or ads. The only way to keep this up, though, is for those of you who like what we're doing and feel comfortable giving to give. If the idea of helping others have easy access to the content we produce feels meaningful to you, please consider supporting this cause with a donation. Give if you can, receive if you need. If we cycle through this way, in the end, everybody wins. All right, and we didn't get to questions this week, so we're going to do you a solid next week. We're going to have a question show, meaning you show up as an audience next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern time, and we will answer your questions. We'll have a nice panel here of, of wise and semi-wise individuals, and we'll do our best to discuss the things you bring up live and, and hopefully get some insight or at least some good conversation around the whole thing. So hope to see you then. Thanks for watching. Talk to you later. Thank you.